Well, good afternoon and uh, um, a hearty welcome to all of the, the delegates uh, this afternoon. Uh, the University of the Free State is uh, presenting the fifth webinar in its thought leadership series for 2021. Uh, and this is part of the Freistart Literature Festival. And it's the online initiative of that Freistart Literature, uh, Literature Festival is called Freisprag Digital. So hearty welcome. I'm Francis Peterson. I'm the Vice Chancellor uh, of the University of the Free State. Now, some of the topics uh, that we uh, dealt with under the 2021 Thought Leadership Series uh, include reimagining universities for student success, corruption in South Africa, uh, the endemic pandemic. Uh, we also focus on South African politics and the local government elections. And then uh, our latest one, our recent one, focused on is South Africa falling apart? So each of these four very and highly topical uh, in the context of, uh, of the discourse, but also discussion, uh, not only at universities, but in, in South African society. In 2020, the webinar series also saw the successful participation, participation of leading experts discussing COVID-19 and the crisis facing the country socially, economically, and politically. Um, and today's discussion is titled, Why Vaccinate? A matter that remains topical, not only in the media and in public discourse, but also in many other spheres of our society. A number of surveys have found some degree of vaccine hesitancy amongst the South African public. This webinar will clarify why we need to vaccinate against COVID-19. A major development in COVID-19 pandemic has been the arrival and distribution of safe and effective vaccines. As the Delta variant of SARS-CoV-2 spreads around the world, the vaccine has proven to be safe and effective enough to prevent severe life-threatening COVID-19 complications. And although the vaccines do not fully protect everyone who is vaccinated, nor guarantee zero transmission, a great deal of adherence to other measures still required, and that is uh, uh, maintaining a social, a social distance, uh, wearing a mask, uh, and then also using uh, sanitize or cleaning your hands on a regular basis. Returning to a new normal routine of life can only happen as more people are vaccinated. Now this webinar will provide you with the data and medical facts about vaccines and COVID-19. And we've got a very, we've got an esteemed, an esteemed panel this afternoon that will, that will unpack uh, uh, this discussion why vaccinate for us. Uh, um, I'll, I'll, I'm going to introduce them um, and I'm going to give a little bit of a background of each of them, very short, uh, and then uh, we're going to start with each of the presenters giving a, a 13 to 50 minute presentation. And the, at the end, we will do a question and answer session. But we also want our delegates and our audience to participate actively in the, in the chat box, the Q&A. Um, and, and so that we can pick up what is your thoughts, what is your thinking, what are the things that, that you would like to ask the panelists. Now, our first panelist 
is Professor Adrian Purin. Um, Adrian is the acting executive director of the National Institute for Communicable Diseases, the NICD. Uh, he was trained and also held a lectureship at the University of the Witwatersrand before taking on various positions at the NICD. Uh, Professor Piran was appointed as deputy director and head of virology in 1999 and as head of the center of HIV, of HIV and STIs in 2017. Professor Piran serves on various expert bodies the most recent of which is the South African Lancet Commission on High Quality Health in the area of Sustainable uh, Development Goals. And uh, uh, if, Adrian, if you could just maybe put on your, 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 your video so that people just can see that is Adrian. Thank you, Adrian. Um, our next uh, 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 panelist is uh, Professor Glenda Gray, and I'm also going to ask Glenda also just to put her video on. Thanks, Glenda. Glenda is the president uh, and the chief executive officer of the South African Medical Research Council and former chair of the Research Committee on COVID-19, providing scientific evidence and experience to the Minister of Health and the National Coronavirus Command Council. Uh, she studied medicine and pediatrics at Wits University, where she remains a full professor uh, for uh, um, research in the School of Clinical Medicine. She's a National Research Foundation A1 rated scientist and is world renowned for research on HIV vaccines and interventions to prevent mother to child transmission uh, of HIV. She is co-principal investigator of the National Institutes of Health funded HIV uh, vaccine trials network and directs the program uh, in Africa. In, in 2013, uh, Professor Gray was awarded the South African's highest honor, the Order of Mapungupwe. Uh, her qualifications include an MBCHB in WITS. Uh, uh, she also got a DSC honoris causa from the Simon Fraser University, a DSC honoris causa from Stellenbosch, and an LLD uh, honoris causa from Rhodes University. So welcome, welcome, uh, Glenda. Our next uh, uh, panelist is uh, Professor uh, uh, or Dr. Nicholas Pierce. Nicholas, if you can put on your, your video, thank you very much. Um, Dr. Pierce, Nicholas Pierce, graduated from the University of Witwatersrand, uh, after which he completed his internship at the Universitas Academic Hospital and has been in, that was in 2003, and has been in the free state ever since. Uh, over the years, Dr. Pierce has been a consultant in general surgery a vascular fellow and head of vascular surgery, and is currently the head of general surgery at the University of the Free State, as well as the Free State Province. Now, since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, uh, Nicholas has been instrumental in setting up multiple field and search facilities throughout the province, as well as several vaccination sites. He's also been involved in multiple studies on COVID-19 over the past year, is uh, currently serving as a provincial task team member for COVID-19 and is also the university's COVID-19 task team chair. So welcome to you, Nicholas. Um, and our final panelist is Dr. Angelique Kutsia. And Angelique, if you could also just put, in your, put on your video um, so that people also can, can see you. Thank you, Angelique. Uh, Dr. Angelique Kutsia, is the national chair of the South African Medical Association, SAMA, and is a leading pillar uh, on health service delivery 
of the Presidential Health Summit. Uh, she has extensive knowledge of private practice and is a member of various initiatives driving primary health care. So over the years, Dr. Kutsia held numerous chair and vice chair positions in, in the SAMA, the South African Medical Association, on national and at branch level. Uh, she was a member of the National Ministerial, Ministerial Task Team on military hospitals in 2013, chairperson of the Ministerial Medical Task Team on internal and external deployment of the SNDF in 2014, and was also elected as vice chair at the Medical uh, Parole Advisory Board in 2011. So indeed, uh, very much a very prestigious and esteemed panel. Uh, thank you very much, Angela, uh, Angelique. So uh, um, what we're going to do is we've given each of our presenters uh, um, a few minutes, as I said, about 15, uh, 13 to 15 minutes to do a presentation, their initial perspective. They can either do it uh, via PowerPoint presentation or they can engage with us uh, uh, um, just, just in a normal way. Uh, and our first presenter is uh, going to be uh, um, Dr. Professor Adrian Purin. And I'm going to hand over to Adrian. So Adrian, your 15 minutes starts now. Over Thanks. to you. Thanks, Professor Peterson, um, for the uh, opportunity. Really, greatly honored to do so. And, and welcome to my, my colleagues as well as part of this panel. I have a few slides there. Again, I'm not a PowerPoint fan. But I have a few slides um, that I'd like to just share just as part of my aid memoir to, to get me through this uh, particular uh, talk. So if I may um, bring up my slides, I'll certainly try and... Uh... Thank you. And if I can just confirm that, that the, the slide is showing. This, the slide is shown, uh, Adrian, so you can carry on. Great. Thank you very much. So here we are um, the, in September of 2021. And as you know, the first case of COVID-19 um, infection was identified on the, the 5th of March uh, 2020. And following our first identification of that particular case, we had gone through three surges and I guess we prefer the word surge, but I know we also have adopted the word um, waves as well. And as we've gone through these particular um, surges, of course, we've obviously had our Disaster Management Act that has guided as to how we manage this particular pandemic and the epidemic in South Africa specifically. So this particular slide shows you the events that have has certainly occurred. Um, through these particular, I'll try and get a pointer. Right. And so the 5th of March is when we first identified the cases and then we went through these particular resurgences, if you like. And then, as you know, um, the government hasn't announced officially yet, but in, in the NSE, we're out of our, um, this particular wave overall, there are provinces such as the Free State and the Northern Cape that are still of, of concern. But we've had, as I said, the Disaster Management Act to, to guide us through these particular resurgences. So we've had the various um, levels of lockdown, if you like. The only time we've actually had a le level five lockdown was during the first um, surge, and then had some adjusted levels as we've gone through these particular resurgences. And of course, 
you've, you've noticed that there's a, a certain degree of heterogeneity through these particular resurgences. And the numbers, of course, had varied. So these are based on the PCR results. And theoretically, not theoretically, but we know that just we're shy of just under 3 uh, million um, tests that have actually 300 million, 3, 3 million positive cases that have been identified. But we do know with this particular disease that in fact, there is a large portion of asymptomatic disease. So in fact, the, the cases could be far larger than that. And they are a lot far larger than that. And again, we've had some serological testing that has been conducted, especially here around the second and third waves. And again, the serology has varied in terms of its design. And so it's varied from 20% up to 60%, but it depends on which particular category or groups of people have actually been identified in order to give us that rate of prevalence. So we've had large numbers of people that have been exposed and that's been confirmed by PCR. And we do know from our serological results, there are also numbers of individuals that have been exposed. But yet, as you can see, we've had ongoing transmission and in fact, this particular surge here has been our larger surge. And as you know, there is a modeling consortium that looks at what the likelihoods are of what the um, outcomes or the, the, the resurgences would look like. And of course, this has really been upended, that those particular models were upended um, by the fact that in fact, we had the variants and the variants of concern in particular in South Africa. So although there was the initial, if you like, wild type variant that um, was imported from, from Europe, this has given rise to the variants that we've seen in South Africa or linked to those. And so we had the first variant here, which is the, the beta two variant. And I know that there's much discussion around um, what this means for, for Great Britain, as it's, I'm sure they wouldn't like to be called that, but that's what it is. So this particular variant certainly contributed to what we were seeing here in that it was highly transmissible and or led to more severe disease. And of course, this particular third resurgence here is a result of primarily a result of the so-called Delta variant. This was originally observed in India, was imported into South Africa. Again, the roots are not always clear, but it's certainly, because it's so highly transmissible, certainly contributed to what we um, have seen over this particular third wave or third um, resurgence. So these are very key and important points. What is also important here compared to the previous waves is the great deal of heterogeneity that we certainly were observing here. Of course, as I said, when we looked at specific provinces, in particular, when you looked at the Northern Cape and you looked at the Free State, um, there was no real exit, if you like, from the second wave into the third. And in fact, as you can see here, when we look at the Northern Cape, and to an extent of the free state, um, the declines are not to the same extent. So they're not really out of the third wave. So although we have large numbers of people infected, doesn't mean that we're close to what is called herd immunity. Now we'll get to that. So I'd, if I can go to the next slide. Yeah. The other consideration when we're thinking about um, vaccines, of course, is the age groups. And again, I think when we look at the three surges that we have had. Um, children have not been markedly affected to the extent that adults have been, except perhaps here in this uh, particular wave, and that may well be because of the um, effect of the, the Delta, that in fact, we do see larger numbers of children being 
affected, but for all intents and purposes, um, below the age of, I think, 15 to 19, the contribution has not, not been as marked in terms of the numbers, as well as severity of disease. Whereas, certainly in the older age groups and those with and without morbidities and mortality, uh, with, uh, with morbidities have certainly contributed greatly to these particular numbers in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. And as you know, the consequences of these throughout these uh, three surges is that in fact, the numbers are, were such that um, our systems, our hospital systems in particular, in terms of our bed capacity, ICU capacity, oxygen capacity, were severely strained. So those models that I spoke about, um, the consortium certainly were to inform around our preparedness and our readiness. And yet um, we were still severely strained despite those particular models um, that were in, in place and to inform how to, to proceed. Back it up to the next slide. So let's focus on herd immunity and why vaccination is important. So as I indicated to you, large numbers of people in South Africa have been infected. However, there are still, I think, a significant proportion of people that have been unexposed to this particular virus. And I know that there was a bit of schadenfreude when we looked at, um, for example, Switzerland, uh, Sweden in particular, sorry, not Switzerland, that had an approach which sort of hinted that we can achieve immunity through, um, even though we, we will achieve this herd immunity, it'll be through not having these lockdown approaches. And in fact, we'll just have natural infections affecting large proportions of our society, and we will have herd immunity. Herd immunity is really about the indirect effect of protecting those individuals who are susceptible. So it's a particular threshold of numbers of people that are have immune responses that will protect the, the community at large. And so when we looked at, for example, um, the coronavirus in terms of its particular R value, that is the number of individuals that are infected through one um, individual that is infected, it ranged from about two to three. So the herd immunity threshold, and I think that's what the basis is for our approach in South Africa, is about 67%. However, it's not as straightforward um, as that. What has complicated herd immunity uh, discussions is really around various factors. One is the virus in and of itself. The virus is spread through airborne transmission. In other words, it's the, the uh, droplets that are released as a result of coughing or sneezing, but these then circulate at great distance and for a long period of time. In addition, it's the variants that have also contributed to the complications around herd immunity. So as I said, when we looked at the early phase of the um, pandemic, we thought that the, the R value would be around between two and three, but we know that we have this new Delta strain, and in fact, it is more highly transmissible, and therefore the R value, the numbers of, of people that could be infected, could range between seven to 10 individuals. Oh, as you know, there are other viruses where herd immunity is certainly still worth talking about. And so measles is certainly one which is worth talking about. And I'll discuss why there is that particular difference. So what is our approach to vaccines with regard to COVID-19? 
So when we consider um, specific viruses, for example, measles and the vaccine there, in terms of the vaccine, it not only prevents infection, but also disease. So we have a different pattern. So before you'll have severe symptoms, moderate symptoms, mild symptoms, and, and, and asymptomatics. If you are infected or if you have um, the vaccine, then that number of um, infections and disease actually declines quite significantly. So in fact, the asymptomatics um, still are a large proportion, but we don't go around in terms of our measles program trying to identify those individuals at all. By contrast, when we look at the vaccine development, the current generation of vaccines around the COVID-19 um, is very different. So in other words, our control or our ability to control this particular virus in terms of infections are rather different. In terms of disease is also very different, as well as transmission is also very different compared to the scenario where we have measles, for example. So before we certainly had individuals who had severe symptoms and may end up in hospital, moderate symptoms, mild symptoms and asymptomatic. However, in the presence of vaccine, it is still possible to have disease. It is still possible to have infection, but and transmission may also be decreased. So we'll have more asymptomatic individuals, a certain degree of mild um, infections and moderate and very few um, severe cases, in other words. So this is the scenario that we have with regard to um, COVID-19. And therefore the discussion around herd immunity threshold, and as I said, the original thought was that we should have a 67% adult population vaccinated, really um, is becoming a bit more mythical. In fact, we should be aiming higher than that. In other words, reaching even 90, if not more, in terms of the numbers of individuals that proportion that should be unvaccinated in order for us to have more endemic control. In other words, ad adapting to the virus um, in terms of, but not necessarily eliminating the virus. I think that's where the discussion is, at least for me. So I know that this is a concern for those who may not be familiar with the fact that in fact, we will have breakthrough infections. That's going to happen. And we are seeing that, but the effect will be that we can certainly have large groups of people that have asymptomatic infections, um, more moderate symptoms, less severe symptoms, less hospitalizations, and less death. And this is just really to illustrate that particular point. When you have a, a virus such as measles, for example, it certainly has what we call inter-organ dissemination first. So it goes through the lymph, blood dissemination, as well as various organs. And the effect is that you can have durable immunity and durable post-durable immunity post-vaccination as well. And this is really critical. And we don't really have variants in circulation. There's only one isotype compared to, for example, coronaviruses. And again, historically, coronaviruses are in circulation now. They cause the common cold. And we do know that there is what is called waning immunity. So we will not, at this particular stage, in terms of our current, um, in terms of natural infections, as well as um, in terms of vaccination, not have durable immunity, but rather we will have immunity and it may, may well wane. But what does that waning mean? And I'm sure Glenda may well address some of those particular points. 
So this is just really to illustrate that vaccines do work. They are effective. And it's really extraordinary that we had a vaccine within 10 to 12 months, which is really based on a history of, of research. And this just shows you or illustrates what happens when you have, for example, a million people that are 92% fully vaccinated. And so 80,000 are not vaccinated, whereas 920,000 are fully vaccinated. You will have 5,280 cases, and 30% of those cases will be um, the not fully vaccinated, as well as 70% in the uh, fully vaccinated cases. And then you'll have 270 admissions, of which 60% will be uh, not fully vaccinated, and 40% of those will be fully vaccinated. So it will happen that these individuals will end up um, in our wards, but not to the same extent if you had a population that's not fully vaccinated, and only 70% fully vaccinated. So the consequence of that is that you'll have a larger number of admissions, and in particular, unvaccinated uh, individuals that will contribute largely to what we will see in the likely fourth wave. So the other consideration around vaccination is this evolving threat. As, I, as you've noted, I've spoken about the various variants that have arisen. So I think there are about four variants of concern um, that the WHO have highlighted. And these variants have particular properties um, that will allow for greater uh, transmissibility in terms of the R value or the effective R value can range, as, as you know now for Delta, up to a level of seven individuals can be infected by one um, individual, as well as immune evasion. In other words, the responses um, in the context of a vaccine may not be to the same extent. In other words, we may well lose some vaccine efficacy, but the vaccines will still be relatively effective. And this has been shown for all three vaccines. Um, in terms of the Moderna, the Pfizer, and the, the J&J, that in fact, yes, effectiveness may decline, but it will certainly still prevent um, severe disease as well as reduce hospitalizations and death. But this is the key factor that we need to bear in mind. So in South Africa, we only really have the Delta variant in circulation. That's the dominant variant that we have in circulation. What will happen next is unclear. Again, it's very difficult um, to predict. So again, when one is asked about what will this um, fourth resurgence look like, I think it's going to be possibly different, but again, we don't really know that. So the, the factors that we need to take into account is that, yes, we have a large proportion of individuals that have been infected through natural infection. We're certainly rolling out vaccines, but are we going to reach those magical numbers. And as I said, even if we reach 67%, in fact, we have to go even higher than that to really ensure that we have endemic um, circulation and equilibrium in, in, in South Africa. And again, we need to take into account um, what the nature of our society is in terms of access, in terms of vaccine, um, I suppose hesitancy is the one word. And again, I think hesitancy contains many phenotypes. It can range from an individual who is scared of a needle to those who do believe that this vaccine was certainly rushed or that um, we are all in the pay of various uh, paymasters in order to push vaccines. So there's a range of threats there as well that we need to address. But it is possible for us to achieve endemic control 
And I think that vaccines are the critical component to that. While we're heading towards that, um, I think it's still really critical for us to emphasize the need for the wearing of masks and wearing them correctly. The physical distancing is still very important. Ventilation is really critical. So all those particular factors still play an important role until we are able to manage this particular evolving threat. So I think I'm going to stop there. I think there were some questions around safety. So we do know that the Pfizer uh, vaccine has been, approach, has been um, approved for above the age of 12. And as you've seen, however, um, that the contribution of children to this particular epidemic is not to the same extent as, as adults. But it is a possible consideration, I think, uh, when we have endemic control, whether or not uh, we should vaccinate all children or specific um, groups of, of children. So I think I'm going to stop there. And thank you very much um, for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you very much, Adrian. Very, very interesting, uh, uh, those results. And we're going to come back to, back to that. There are a couple of questions in the chat box already. But we will come back. I'm going to go directly over to uh, to Glenda uh, and Adrian. We can probably you have unshared. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Glenda. Over to you. Thanks very much, and thanks, Adrian. I think that you did a, a wonderful job in framing um, the the issue and framing the epidemic. And just to just to also say, in terms of the um, of the pandemic, um, the MRC tracks excess deaths um, over time. And we've been doing this for the last 20 years. And we have, um, we predict that this year, uh, COVID-19 deaths will outstrip HIV as being the leading cause of death in our country. And we're logging over, I think, you know, just over 230,000 deaths of which um, half of it have occurred uh, this year. So definitely evidence that um, we have not been left unscathed and that we have a, a, a critical um, and a critical pandemic. All of us have lost um, families and friends and colleagues and staff to COVID. And, um, and we do know that it can be devastating with, to people, particularly elderly and people with comorbidities. But also um, as we um, have seen uh, in our colleagues and in, in, um, in our parts of our work is that um, young people um, are not left unscathed. And we have seen deaths in young people as well. So saying that um, it's not only the elderly and the people with comorbidities that will be affected. And it's very hard to predict those who um, will or not, uh, won't be affected adversely by um, SARS-CoV-2. So the question I guess um, that the university is grapp grappling with is to vaccinate or not. And whether um, vaccine mandates are the way to go or whether there are other ways of, of increasing the coverage um, of, of vaccination um, in institutions or in places of work. And um, I, I guess the, the question of the benefits of mandatory vaccinations at universities um, um, is something that you've been discussing at your university and you've had various consultations. And I think um, Adrian um, did point out the, the benefits um, of vaccination and that's to prevent hospitalization and death and, um, and by vaccinating, you also impact on isolation and quarantine challenges. And so you don't have place, if you, if you are, have got good coverage of vaccination, you're not gonna have to keep on closing classrooms, um, um, hostels, uh, floors of hostels or, um, or, or bed situations. So it does impact on your workforce. So having, having vaccination programs will help um, keep 
um, the workplace open, prevent um, uh, the issues required for isolation on, on contact and the issues of quarantine if you are COVID positive. So I think that's an important benefit of mandatory vaccinations at university. But one of the most important um, benefits is to gain control of the academic year. All the universities um, have been um, have really suffered from having to move to online learning, where a lot of the um, students um, do not have the luxury and privilege of having uh, data that's available to them all the time. And so, one of the reasons why you would want to do mandatory vaccination at your university is to gain control of your academic year. Um, the issue of hybrid learning um, is important, and you will still see a lot of hybrid learning going on as we go into various surges, but, but students still need interaction. They still need face-to-face -face, um, teaching, and they still need the, 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 the interaction, the socialization, the politicization happens at a university. We have to maximize the university experience. We can't have our students online. Um, there's a lot of mental health issues, and just that the whole, the whole reason why we go to university is to maximize our experience to make us well-rounded human beings. And so hybrid learning will continue, um, but we still need to have our students um, in, on the campuses and in the classrooms and interacting with us and other people as, as, as students. Um, in, in terms of other benefits of mandatory vaccination, we know that university residences will benefit from vaccine mandates because you'll be able to keep your, your, your residences open. You can bring students back and um, that particularly vulnerable students who 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 have who have um, uh, challenging um, work um, home home lives that are do, that are not uh, always uh, um, they don't always benefit from having electricity and and water and data and so particularly for vulnerable students they will benefit from keeping university residents open. Academic staff are also critical to be vaccinated. First of all, they're much older. Than, the, than their students. And um, by vaccinating them, you protect your staff uh, from, from death and hospitalization. And this is critical for, for the whole um, education economy um, to make sure that we, we support and keep our, both our academic staff safe and as well as our support staff. They also need to protect it, be protected. They're vulnerable and they, they interface with the public all the time. And so to vaccinate, um, uh, the, the support staff is critical also, also prevents um, um, issues of death and hospitalization and devastation to their families, as well as having to keep on quarantine um, health um, support staff and, um, and issues of isolation. So certainly there are huge benefits of, of, of um, universal vaccine coverage um, in um, either in a voluntary fashion or in a mandatory fashion if the voluntary fashion doesn't, doesn't work. So the question, um, one would also ask is, would it be beneficial for employees and institutions to formulate and implement a vaccine policy? And I think this is a critical um, move to open up academic institutions. And I think that um, the engagement that the University of the Free State have be, has been doing uh, with union, with students and with, with academic staff is an important um, process to formulate and implement a vaccine policy. Uh, we've seen other universities, um, certainly the, um, the, the, the UCT was the first to um, vote at Senate on this and, um, and probably be the first university to, to come up with a vaccine mandate. Other universities like uh, University of Free State, um, like WITS is, is having these discussions as well to, um, to try and uh, in a critical move to open up academic institutions and to 
enhance the student learning experience at, at their universities. There's a lot of, lot of discussion around how vaccine hesitancy contributes to the hampering um, of substantial efforts made by government to manage the pandemic in our country. And we've seen from um, uh, uh, um, Adrian's presentation, you've seen the various surges and you've seen the evolution um, of the vaccine over time. I mean, the evolution of the virus over time. And certainly um, um, the, 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 the need to increase coverage um, uh, Adrian spoke about the, her, the, the, the challenges of herd immunity in a, um, in a pandemic where you do have waning natural immunity, which needs to be augmented uh, by, by, by vaccination. Uh, we do believe that we will have to do serial vaccinations. Already we've seen that there has been a, a fall off in vaccine effect effectiveness um, uh, in the US um, when, when, you when you look at the Pfizer vaccine. And it's sometimes hard to, to differentiate waning immunity and um, the impact of a new circulating variant of concern. But this has, has led to um, the initiation of a third dose of vaccination. Um, first of all, um, targeting um, highly exposed uh, workers like doctors, healthcare workers and other frontline staff. And I think we, we, because we, even though we believe that um, there have been a lot of people that have, have been infected by SARS-CoV-2 in the, in the recent Delta um, surge, um, our vaccine coverage is not enough to, to gain, gain control at, at the moment. And I do believe that we do need to increase coverage. Um, I agree with Adrian about the, uh, you know, what is the, myth, what is the level? Oh, it's almost mythical, the 70%. I think we are gonna have to reach much higher levels um, of vaccination coverage to start to control uh, the pandemic. Why should we control um, the, why should we vaccinate? Why should we try and control the, the um, SARS-CoV-2 infection or transmission in our country? We have to do that because uh, we need our economy to start. We've seen how we've been affected by um, being, being on the red list of certain countries. This affects our economy, it affects our tourism, it affects our, our jobs. There are a lot of people that have lost jobs and um, if, we, if we want to interface with the rest of the world, we're gonna have to have the discussion around um, um, making sure our citizens in this country are vaccinated. We heard a little bit about the, um, the, the new variants emerging and um, whether vaccination will prevent a fourth wave um, or contribute to a smaller fourth wave. And I think um, I agree with Adrian on this is that it's gonna be very hard to predict uh, what the next wave is gonna be like. You know, we don't know. Um, how the virus is, is going to evolve. Um, it's very critical that South Africa does have very good surveillance, uh, molecular surveillance. Um, wherever there are, are, are outbreaks in the country, there are concomitant um, selection of, of, of um, samples to do um, a genetic analysis to try and see uh, which way the, um, the, the, virus is, the, the, the virus is evolving. We also have to know that um, if we have chronic shedders, um, we have a lot of people, there are a lot of people who are immune suppressed in our country and they can contribute to, to chronic uh, shedding. And when there is chronic shedding, um, there is evolution of the virus. And so um, we also have to take into account that South Africa may be uniquely different to other parts of the world because we do have high levels 
of HIV disease. We have high levels of TB. We have a lot of people who don't know that they're HIV infected and are not on treatment. And these um, and, and uh, being immunosuppressed um, is a risk factor for, for being a chronic shedder and having viral evolution. And so um, it's hard for us to predict what the fourth wave will look like. And also um, the, the waning immunity that we have seen with the um, alpha and the, the, beta, the beta surge um, um, and uh, may not um, help those who've been infected in the first and second wave. It may not help them in the fourth wave and therefore further justifying um, uh, vaccination. We do know uh, from the Sasanki study that uh, the single jab J&J vaccine uh, did protect against severe disease, death and hospitalization. And this has been corroborated um, by a recent paper that's come out in the US that also looked at um, the, the, the value of the single dose uh, uh, vaccination and saw that it did protect against, um, against hospitalization and death. But we are seeing um, evidence at a global level um, that there may be some waning um, effectiveness um, with, the, um, with the single jab J&J and uh, the needing for probably boosting uh, between six and nine months after uh, you've been vaccinated, particularly people who are elderly and people with comorbidities. So we do, we do know that the single jab has worked against the Delta variant. And uh, we do believe that um, our healthcare workers need a boost um, before December in, in case there is a, a, a wave that we can't predict and a surge that um, is going to happen. So I'm gonna end there, um, a VC. And, um, and, and maybe we can pick up some of the conversation um, um, at, with, um, at the end when there's a, a, a panel of discussion. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks very much, Blenda. And I certainly think that there, um, there are going to be some questions. Uh, and, and some of those questions, I think we need to, uh, we need to unpack and understand the myths around, around certain things. And, and, and therefore, we're going to challenge some of, some, of, some, of, some of the things that you have said and also Aiden have said, uh, just to get a better understanding. But thank you very much, Glenda. Uh, our next presenter is Nicholas Pierce. Uh, Nicholas, over to you. Thanks very much, Prof, and well, um, thanks very much to the colleagues here. So I, I, the first thing I just want to tackle is, is this concept of when we're going to go into and out of lockdown and the impact that vaccination has on this, this idea. If we look in broad terms of what we, we view, we look at, first of all, the positivity rate, and that's the number of tests done divided by how many are positive, and it gives you a positivity rate. Now, Adrian alluded to earlier that, that our positivity, you know, that, that, that the free state is sort of going out of this third way. Our positivity rate is very high currently in the free state. We're running at about 17% as of this morning, meaning that 17% of tests are, are, are coming back positive. Now, if, uh, if you want to understand it, what the NICD has been saying is that about 5% is considered to be an, an acceptable limit where, you, where your disease is under control. So we at the moment are having a massive positivity rate. Now, this is, and I would accept it, it is a, it is a relationship of how many tests are done uh, and and what the how many come back positive? So if, if your number of tests go down, you know, and you you, you maybe only testing that the, the sicker patients, that does affect your results, and, and we must accept the limitations of this. But it's one of the key measures we have. Then Adrian touched on the R value, but maybe another way of viewing it is, is regarding how quickly our doubling rate is, or what our increase is on our seven-day moving average, and that we are definitely seeing a decline at the moment. And then the next one is whether you have local outbreaks. Um, so these could be, you know, with, within institutions, within particular geographic areas, or within particular provinces. 
And then you've got your hospital admission data you need to look at, uh, you know, are the hospitals overwhelmed and, you know, can they accommodate more patients? And these four factors then will allude to whether you can come into or out of lockdown and, and you know, you move within that. So, so what, what I, why I'm introducing that concept is that the idea with vaccination is to try and decrease each one of these things, that outbreaks become less um, likely to occur, you know, that you don't have institutional outbreaks, that you, you close a university, close a school. Just give you an example, about two weeks ago, we had to close 20 schools within the free state just to try and contain this area. You know, your positivity rate down, so we would then be able to not have as dramatic lockdown. So there's no specific value. And I, 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 Adrian mentioned 67%, that was a number at the beginning. I, I foresee that it's probably going to be a bit higher. Uh, or a lot higher, and I don't think anyone knows that exact number. And the reason for this is that with the new variants coming in and with um, the, 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 the penetration or the, the, the availability of them to work probably is not as good as we would think. If, if the vaccine was 100% protective, you probably could get it with the new variants, whether the whole population you know, needs to be. So that would just be my comments regarding that. In terms of whether we would be able to then, when we come out of lockdown, go back to a normal uh, state, I think it's critical that we get vaccinated in order to go back to any sense of normality. And um, Glenda alluded to the fact of universities ret returning. And I think we're forgetting how important it is for university students to have discourse while walking between lectures, to sit around chatting and, and elucidating on ideas. And unfortunately, with this whole pandemic, we, we've stopped that aspect of learning. So it's going to be critical that if we want to go back to a university environment where lectures don't only happen and learning doesn't only happen in the university environment or in the lecture room, then, our, uh, then we will need to be, you know, have a large number vaccinated within our university population. And if we want to go back to soccer games, you know, rugby games, etc., I, I can foresee that we'll be able to do it with large numbers of vaccination. And in the meeting last week with the minister, he was indicating that probably we're going to have two sets of, 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 of rules for vaccinated versus unvaccinated in the broader communities. So, for example, you'll only be able to go to a soccer game if you're vaccinated or centre. Uh, then the next thing I just want to touch on a little bit is the mental attitude that we as society needs to, while I agree with Prof Peterson and what Glenda said, you know, wearing masks and social distancing, this is mentally taking a toll on us as society. And if we have any ability to go back, we've seen depression go up, suicides go up and all of that type of thing. If we've got any ability to go back to any sense of normality, we're going to have to get a large number of vaccinated people so that we're all able to go back to, to social animals that human beings by nature are. And, uh, and, and I would therefore urge people to get vaccinated. I, just from a medical point of view, and being a surgeon at heart, what we have noticed during these waves is that the number of people presenting with the stage four um, cancer, the more severe, has increased. We think this is probably due to people being hesitant to go to hospital or unable to find healthcare resources. Or, and this is true in private and in state. So I, I'm a little bit um, concerned going forward, you know, regarding whether we will um, find, you know, medically, the impact that we have will be only be told in a number of years, you know, are people following up for their diabetes at the, at the rate? And we, we must just be careful that we don't forget about the non-COVID diseases and the impact. So the quicker we can get out of this COVID pandemic, and we probably will never get rid of COVID, maybe it will come, become endemic, but, uh, you know, we can go back to treating medical diseases. We definitely are noticing an increase. Uh, I, I think that there were some mentions in the, the chat rooms I, I saw regarding the economic benefits of this. Um, I think we want to divide the economics into two factors. There is definitely a medical economics here. Um, we, we cannot allude to that more. And the, the economic problems are, are massive. We're noticing in, in the free state that a large number of people that were on medical aids have stopped their medical aids, that uh, you know, the patients are, are not able to be treated at private facilities. 
And even those people that have got medical aids, you know, the private uh, number of beds for COVID has decreased and that the patients with medical aids, we're admitting them now. And then the other, the, the other reality is that if you're going to go for your other surgeries, that, these, that the beds are no longer available. So those are economic within the health sector. I think the problem with the, the economics of this whole thing, while we know that it is in the short term probably going to close businesses, you know, people are going to be unemployed. What we're noticing now during this last wave, which I think Adrian did allude to, but probably didn't highlight, is we've definitely seen a shift in terms of the demographics of the people infected. During the first and second wave, we had sort of the above 60s getting infected and, and dying. And during this wave, we've seen a large number of the younger population. Now, whether this is due to the vaccine or whether in the first wave and second wave they got immunity, I'm, well, it's difficult to say. But definitely we're losing a lot of breadwinners. And in the medium term to long term, this is going to have huge economic uh, repercussions. And then the, the, third, uh, the third phase will be the long term problems for the, for the country and for the, for the world as a whole. You know, we, we're having large numbers of schools, of tertiary institutions that are, are closing or not giving education. And every time we come out of lockdown, the number of school students returning back to school decreases. And this is going to have long-term economic impacts beyond just this wave. So uh, I, I do foresee that the economic benefits are, are, way, are, are way out. Um, I, I, I'm a little bit concerned regarding the messaging we've been sending from the beginning has been that, you know, that children are not affected and, you know, they, they're protected and whatever. So I just wanted to speak a, a few seconds on that. What we've noticed in the free states and where we all are working and living is that about 1% of children under the 18 years of age that are getting COVID are dying. And that, that is across, across the board. We, we are, we are, we, we've got a bit of a problem there. To say they're unaffected or, you know, children are not going to be a problem, you know, it's partly, I think, the messaging when we started was like, you know, the elderly patients are, are you know, are, are the only ones affected or whatever, but the children definitely are being affected. And then the other secondary aspect of children being affected is this idea that they will, um, they go to school environment, they get infected, and then they carry that virus home. And that is, is the other reason why it would be so important that everyone is vaccinated, because we need to try and stop that transmission rate. And we're having a large psychological problems um, with, with uh, particularly the pediatric and the children population and young adults. We had one of the university students um, who became positive and went home and saw his grandparents um, over a weekend, two grandparents dead, you know, and that had massive psychological impact on him. So, so there's a lot of reasons why we do it. Just on a micro uh, microcosm of, of before I end uh, my, my points here, on a microcosm, I, I would agree with Glenda. What we've noticed in the first and second wave, where the healthcare workers were not vaccinated, we had a large number of, us, of our healthcare workers out of action. You know, we were quarantining large numbers. We were really struggling, struggling to to maintain services, doctors, nursing, physiotherapists, all going into isolation, quarantine, dying. We we have not had that same effect in the third wave. And definitely the healthcare workers have been protected in this wave and definitely not dying at the same uh, rate. And, uh, you know, that, that, that can be discussed. So Prof Peterson, if there's nothing else, um, then I'm gonna hand back to you. But I think that that's the major points I want to just get across. Thank you, Prof. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nicholas. And, and we certainly will come back to, uh, um, to some, of the, some of the things that you've raised uh, in this presentation. Surely the mental health uh, component uh, uh, is something that, that hasn't, hasn't been raised before. So that's, that is something that I think is important. Um, our final panelist is uh, Dr. Angelique Kutsia. Angelique, uh, um, just want to check uh, whether you 
uh, are connected and I'm going to hand over to you. You can maybe just unmute yourself. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good afternoon. And um, yeah, I'm going to come from a bit of a different angle. And I would like to share some of the findings that was published by the Center for Social Change at the University of Joburg, UG, in collaboration with the Developmental, Ethical and Capable State, DEX, Research Division of the Human Science Research Council, released when they released their newest research finding on vaccine hesitancy last month. It's a very interesting study. And we are seeing that a vaccine hesitancy, um, while it might have dropped by 5% since January, um, about 72% of South African adults now indicating acceptance of COVID-19 vaccines, which um, are applaudable. But South Africa faces two um, significant challenges, according to the study. And the first is that if all 72% were to actually get vac uh, vaccinated, we'd still be 8% short of the government's target of 80%. So we know that government has secured significant vaccines uh, to vaccinate the entire adult population and the supply of vaccines should no longer be a, a concern or a constraint um, as we had seen earlier in this year. So what do we need to do? We need to convince some of the people who are currently hesitating of the value um, of getting vaccinated. And the other challenge is the, 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 the vision between people who want to be vaccinated and those who have actually been vaccinated. So we know that more or less just under 20% of adults have been fully or partially vaccinated. That's clearly a problem um, you know, going forward. And then if they, they compare the, the results from around three that was in December 2020 to 6 of January with the results of round four, that was in June uh, 2021 to uh, 20th of July 2021, we saw that the acceptance amongst the older age group um, has risen um, substantially by about 11%, according to Prof. Alexander. But what is still concerning is among the younger age group, those aged 18 to 24, and their acceptance has actually declined from 63% to 55%. And this is underscored by the acceptance rate among students. We, we heard that um, Glenda spoke about this. And um, the students, again, is an important segment of, of the under 25 year age group, and that is about 58%. Um, it is also important that this needs to be addressed. And um, here, as Glenda and some of the other universities already said, that the vice chancellors are critical, academics, students, leaders, everyone needs to play a role here. So the second challenge that came um, to the foreground was one of access. So we have said many times before that vaccine should be brought to, to the people and not the other way. So finally, we are seeing that this is now starting to happen, but I think it's too slow especially in the rural areas and maybe a bit too late because we did ask in the beginning that the vaccines needed to be taken to the people. So let's see what, what's going to happen going forward. Then some of the reasons was um, for vaccine hesitancy, there was side effects and the ineffectiveness. That was, there were the two top reasons for vaccine hesitancy in South Africa. And um, so, 
the most common explanations that people gave was the desire to protect oneself, that was 64%, or to protect the society, 28%, and uh, um, yeah, 20, uh, 82%. So these concerns are particularly pronounced about among our white adults who have lower levels of vaccine acceptance compared to other population groups. And the most common self-reported explanations among those that are hesitant about taking the vaccine were concerns um, around side effects, concerns that the vaccine will be ineffective and the distrust of the vaccine and or government. And we saw some of these um, questions on the chat raised about why this vaccine was developed so quickly, you know, and, and I think um, maybe Prof. Glenda can, can speak to this because it wasn't really um, that difficult to get um, a vaccine for the COVID-19 um, virus or, or, or disease um, as this part of the corona family and um, those vaccines has been already um, started to, to, to um, be developed before as although you are also your flu vaccines but I would leave that to the experts of, of um, Glenda. For oh, no, those that were willing to vaccinate the five most common explanations, again, it was to protect themselves, 64%, the protection of the society, 28%, trust in the science and the government, it's very low, it's about 5%, and then it was others, 4%, and um, also to be accepting by other people, it's 4%. I want to, I want to um, emphasize again that in our country, our scientists, um, especially around the science of virus and genetics, um, we have some of the best minds in the world. And, um, you know, it's always so sad for me to see how people are questioning everyone, um, uh, you know, on the scientific level. And, and I'm always using this, ex this example of to say, you know, although I'm a medical doctor and I know my field, uh, I can never go to a brain surgeon and tell the brain surgeon how he needs to do or perform his operation on the brain and what he needs to do. And I think he's got a better plan if he cuts a bit more to the left than to the right or whatever, you know. But um, we tend, or the, the public tend then to come out and in a very difficult and highly, highly um, specialized field to, to say to the scientists, you are wrong. Um, you developed something that was not value or was too quick or whatever, you know. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I'm more than a year sitting in these um, advisory committee meetings. And I must say to you today, when I finished with uh, medical school, um, virology um, was, um, yes, it was there, but it was not on the same level that it was today. And for me, sometimes after these meetings, I still go down, look, look up my basic biology to try to understand with what they were talking about. Because it's a different world. It's not the same than the world that I am working in or the brain surgeon are working in. And we need to, we need to appreciate um, their knowledge, knowledge. So again, if we look at the reasons why they were not, um, not willing to, to vaccinate, um, we just get that reasons here to go down sorry so they were unwilling to vaccinate again the five most common explanations back to side effects 30 percent 
ineffectiveness, 24%, distrust, 21%, 9% was unsure. And um, again, they don't want to vaccinate themselves because they want to protect themselves, 7% was, um, was uh, in that field. So recently, um, the Deputy President David Mabusa launched a vaccination social mobilization campaign where he encouraged um, the citizens to get vaccinated. He also acknowledged the role of fake news and conspiracy theory played in the number of people getting vaccinated. Um, so again, if we look at current data, just about 54% uh, of people in South Africa over the age of 50 have been received at least one jab. And again, significant variances, uh, variation between the provinces. We need to understand that the people who are the most at risk are the 50 um, pluses, uh, um, and, and, and especially if you have comorbidities. But it seems that people doesn't want to hear that and they will take their chances. So we also need to maintain the message that everyone should be vaccinated, not only the 60 pluses, the 50 pluses, or the 18 year old. So we know that moving forward, that most likely the 12 years um, and above will also become eligible for vaccination um, once if we have um, been vaccinated at least 70% of our um, adult population. Um, and it's important to also look at that age group. Um, it's been mentioned by some of the previous speakers that children, yes, although they don't get that ill, um, we know that they are carriers, asymptomatic carriers, and then we know that they take it into the community or at home, you know, back to their homes. And it's important to get them on board as well. Um, but again, if the parents doesn't want to get vaccinated, it's going to be difficult. Um, you know, if a 12 year old says, I want to be vaccinated and the mother and father said, you're not going to be vaccinated. So there's an ethical dilemma. Hopefully this will be addressed at some stage um, and, and, and see um, how one can mitigate that. So the message must be clear. We need to vaccinate to save the health system and to save lives. Um, and we call it severe disease and maintain the non-pharmaceutical interventions throughout. I know we are all tired of that, but that is everyone's responsibility. It's not only the, the, the Department of Health's responsibility, it's my responsibility, it's your responsibility, it's everyone's responsibility. So if we look at some data that was um, being released by Discovery Health last week, looking at um, the, the last two weeks um, uh, COVID-19 cases, it is important to understand that um, from the discovery data that 68% um, um, of the total adult members were not fully vaccinated. So around about um, 800,000 discovery members were fully vaccinated, but 1.7 not yet fully vaccinated. Of those patients, or members of discovery, their active COVID um, admissions the past two weeks, 29 that was fully vaccinated and 392 that was not fully vaccinated. Your active ICU admissions, six that were fully vaccinated, 89 that were not fully vaccinated. Um, if you look at the active ventilation um, uh, admissions, eight, six were fully vaccinated, 
And again, 91 not fully vaccinated. And if you look at the deaths in the past two weeks, only eight of the fully vaccinated versus 112 that were not fully vaccinated. So this brings us back to the point that we keep on saying that we will, if you get vaccinated, your risk for severe disease and ending up in hospital is dramatically less, less than those that's not been vaccinated. This is South African data. We also saw some data coming through from the Eastern Cape um, where um, all the admissions from, I think it was from January, I'm not sure um, uh, uh, about my facts there, but that they were actually vaccinated, not vaccinated, um, that their hospital admission, admissions in the, um, and, and you know, so it doesn't matter how many times we keep on trying to say to people, please get vaccinated. Um, they don't hear that. And um, they still want to take their chances with the virus and it's fine. You know, um, I want to, 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 to take to, or send the message out there. It's your choice. In the end of the day, you don't need to get vaccinated. It's your choice. But we have seen that some of the doctors, um, and there was very nice um, articles written on that, where um, some of the, where um, in the third wave, that um, between 35 to 49% of healthcare workers um, between the second and third wave actually suffered from PTSD. So PTSD, while I can cope, but I promise you, if the fourth wave comes in again, and I'm again back into that same scenario, your vaccine, your empathy levels for unvaccinated people is dramatically um, diminished. This leads to doctors not being friendly to the patients. Patients feel the doctor is not listening to them. Um, the doctor feels you are putting yourself at risk. You're putting every one of us at risk um, in our um, environment. We know that we can get breakthrough infections, um, but you know, you, you as a person, I, I cannot tell you not, or I can't, can't show you a way. I need to treat you. But um, again, the PTSD memories come back very strongly. And then as I have said that um, the, the uh, problem with uh, empathy um, of vaccines. So very interesting tendence that I saw in my own practice. And uh, I, must, I must share this with you guys today. So I've, I have been asked yesterday by a patient around, um, it was a fake news and a scientific that was being presented to me and the patient said please you have to read this um you know it's it's horrible and what's going to happen to every one of us that's been vaccinated and i said listen i'm not going to read this i only read um, you know i will only comment on scientifically published um, articles peer-reviewed in a, um, a, a, a magazine that is um, being accepted by all the other um, scientists out there. And so I didn't want to give any opinion. Today, I got the letter from that same doctor, uh, that same patient, they want their files. I remember she's been with me for nearly 20 years. They want their file because they cannot come to a doctor anymore who are supporting vaccines and to be vaccinated. You know, it's uh, what, where are we? So what's going to happen if I'm telling you I'm not going to see you because you're not vaccinated? So, so we need to have this, um, this um, uh, uh, conversation. And, and uh, I think it's, it's taking it a lot 
quite a, a quite a stretch to, to tell me that you're not going to come to my surgery anymore because I believe in vaccines. And with that, let me just uh, just uh, uh, give back to Prof. Francis. And again, thank you. I think this is a very important seminar and webinar to have. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks very much, Angelique. Um, I'm going to ask the panelists to to switch off, uh, switch on their video videos because we're now going to go in a in a sort of panel discussion. Uh, um, and, and, and I'll use it on the back of some of the questions that some of you have seen in the chat box already. And, 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 and maybe a question that I want to, 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 uh, to, to direct to Adrian and Glenda, um, because a lot of, the, a lot of the, uh, um, the, the comments that I picked up in the chat box is questioning the validity of the science. Uh, uh, um, it, 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 it questioning the, um, the, 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 the truth in it, you know, I often say that research is searching for the truth, but the question that I'm picking up here is that if the vaccine is being developed in such a short time, uh, can we trust that? Uh, um, is, are the data transparent? Uh, um, aren't the scientists in cahoots with the pharmaceutical companies just to make money? That's sort of the, the those are the comments that I, that I pick up. And, 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 and Adrian, I'm going to start with you uh, because part of this, uh, ultimately, I want to come to the hesitancy as a question later on, but this is, this is one of the reasons that you, Adrian, have said is that uh, um, sometimes people might not, uh, it's not that they don't want to be uh, vaccinated, it's the, it's the understanding where the information comes from, can I believe it, and then if you then uh, put social media on top of that, then, then obviously that, that create even a, a, a further chaos. So Adrian, do you want to start with that? And then I'm going to ask to Glenda and then maybe uh, uh, Angelique and Nicholas, if they also want to comment on that, because I think this is, this is a fundamental, this is a fundamental part of dealing with, with, with the challenges out there with respect to vaccination. Adrian, over to you. Yeah, so Glenn and I uh, share a history around HIV vaccines. <laughs> That's been, if you recall, I think uh, I think some USA administrator said, I think in 1980-odd, that you'll have a vaccine in three years. So compared to uh, what we have with the mRNA vaccine that has been developed, and of course the adenovirus vaccines, it looks as if it's been in a short period. And I think that's what the problem is for many people, that perception that it took just 10 months or less uh, for us to come up with this solution. But if you look at the history of the mRNA vaccines and some of the adenovirus-based vaccines, there's actually a very long history behind that, including the mRNA vaccines. And, and I think it's important that people get that in that perception clearly in their minds, that there's been a systematic scientific series of discoveries and failures um, in terms of the development of the science and to achieve this particular um, remarkable feat that we have here. And I say, I think we should celebrate that, that science has actually contributed um, so well. I mean, vaccines are certainly a, a very key and important um, public um, initiative and intervention. And I think we should celebrate that and realize that in fact, it's not just one particular individual that's suddenly come up with a conspiracy theory, but in fact, there'll be multiple efforts. Um, and Glenda can tell you all about the, the multiple networks and efforts that go into do vaccine development. And in fact, the monitoring of vaccine development as well has really been critical. Again, when we set up our protocols in terms of ethical approval, community approval, and then going through the various stages of vaccine um, 
testing, for example, phase one, phase two, phase three, and the different nuances around those particular phases. And the independent monitoring, and I think that's also very important, um, is that once Glenda has submitted her <clears throat> portfolio of evidence, it's independently monitored. In fact, it's monitored during the vaccine trial to make sure that are there any benefits of this particular vaccine as we're going through this trial, or is it showing the obverse? And again, we've experienced vaccine failures where, in fact, the, the effect of this vaccine is poor compared to what we expected to see, not just for HIV, but other viruses as, as well. And similarly, when the dossiers go in, an independent organization looks at that data, independent of the researchers again, and say, well, this is what that data looks like. This vaccine is effective or useless, if you like. So you may have spent years and decades on this. You may well come up with something that doesn't work. And all the, all the obverse is that you may come up with something that's really remarkable. So I think it's around the, the literacy, the scientific literacy. I think um, Dr. Kassia raised that particular point. She says she goes back and reads and tries to understand and fathom. I think for me, my perception going through some of these um, discussions is that, and some of the interviews that I've had on radio is that, or television is that, our level of scientific literacy and our ability to communicate um, these particular facts sometimes is, is really difficult. I think we can flavor it or couch it in such a way that it actually obscures and adds to the, the problem. So I'm hoping that we can demystify some of that. But I, I think I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. Okay, let's, uh, let's hear Glinda. Thanks, Adrian. Yeah, I mean, so I think, first of all, to, to say that, um, you know, we have, a, uh, we have many years of understanding how vaccines work. Vaccines are, are platforms, they, you know, they either can be inactivated, they can be viral vectors, they can be mRNA, they can be DNA, they can be nanoparticles. Um, and you use the, those platforms, which are well used and understood for other, other virus infections. You use those platforms and, you, and you, um, we, we know what the SARS-CoV-2 uh, um, uh, virus looks like. We know that the spike protein is the, 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 the protein that attaches to the ACE2 receptor. So we know that if we um, synthesize the spike, the spike protein and we insert it into the, um, the, the platform or we instruct the mRNA to, to um, induce antibody responses um, using the mRNA technology or if we use DNA, you know, so we know how vaccines work. And we've, you know, we've used these platforms for Zika, for RSV, for HIV, which we've always failed because um, we haven't been able to find a, a, an immunogen um, that is consistent and can, can induce um, um, broadly neutralizing antibodies in that. And so, so, so just I want to agree, you know, so I have been involved in HIV vaccine research and I've done three, three large scale clinical trials with, with Adrian and I failed each time. Okay, I failed each time, which shows you that um, not all vaccines are, are you know, um, you, you have, they're all blinded. So you go through your phase, you have your pre-clinical, your, pre your animal models, you do your non-human primate challenge. Um, you, then, you then validate your, um, your, um, your early safety and immunogenicity where you look at your doses, you find the right dose. You then look at the Im immune response to, to those doses and you look at neutralizing antibodies and CD4 and CD8 T cell responses. That's well validated. You can you put the vaccine in and then you measure how, how the immune response is. And then you do, when you get into your effectiveness studies, um, it's a double blind randomized study. So no one knows who gets the vaccine and no one knows who gets the placebo. Not me, not the company, not anyone, um, except 
the, the data safety, safety and monitoring board, board and the unblinded statistician who never ever talks to the team. So we only know that the vaccine works when, um, when the data safety and monitoring board looks at the data and gives us a call. And, um, and then um, the data gets unblinded and we're able to see the, the distribution of cases between um, vaccine and placebo. And so these are well-controlled trials and they, they, they monitor safety. So we have, so after we've, so say, say for the, for the, most of these studies have been in 40,000, you know, in around 20, 20 to 40,000 individuals. And so we have a good idea on preliminary safety. And then you put them into our larger studies, like the effectiveness studies or into government rollouts, and you monitor the safety in those, um, those studies. And they're well monitored, whether it's the CDC or the European, the European or the UK um, or, or the South African um, 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 program, they're well monitored, and we use a whole lot of um, data from from particularly from NICD. We know who 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 has who's who's COVID positive, and we can link it back to the EVDS. We know who's been to hospital because um, NICD has got that, and we can link that back to who got vaccinated, and we know uh, who died because we have the death register. Mm. And so it's very easy for, for us to, to, to follow up. And, and can, I can tell you that, yes, there are rare events that we see. And these are rare, rare events are um, you know, between six and eight per million um, vaccinated. And the rare events will, will, will be differentiated by which vaccine you get. And, and, and so there are going to be rare events. And there will be side effects. And there will be reactogenicity because this is a reactogenic vaccine. And so there will be, um, you know, um, you know, some reactogenicity, and and there will be some rare events that we should anticipate. But that doesn't mean that we should not be able to vaccinate um, individuals because of these rare events. And we look at the risk-benefit ratio of this, and um, I, I can tell you that um, uh, we COVID nineteen is going to be the biggest leader. It's going to be the leading cause of death in our country this year. Okay, and we can stop it by vaccinating. You know, we know that vaccines prevent death and hospitalization. And so do we want another 200,000 people dying next year because we haven't vaccinated when we know this vaccine works? Um, we, we, we don't know. Um, um, Dr. Mboti said that the COVID death rate is 1%. We know it's completely underestimated. And we've had a devastating epidemic in South Africa. And so, um, you, know, I, you know, I don't know where you're getting your data from, but I can tell you that if it's becoming the leading cause of death in this country, we have a serious problem with COVID-19. Mm. And the only way we can prevent death and hospitalization, unfortunately, is through vaccination. All right. So, so uh, um, the, one, the one area of concern was the, uh, the validity of the science and the data. The other area, it seems to me also coming out of the discussion, is the trust in government and the trust in corporations, in companies. Uh, um, there was a, a comment that's been made is that, so since when does government and corporations and companies care about our health? Uh, um, which is a very open statement. And, 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 and I'm gonna direct it to Nicholas because Nicholas is in a very good position. He's working for the university, but he's also working for the province. So he's got, he's got a, a hat on as a corporation, as, a, as an entity for the university, but also a hat on for government. Nicholas, do you want to, do you want to respond to that specific statement? <laughs> Look, Prof, I mean, the reality is we do care, but let, let's make an assumption that we, we don't really care about the individual. Let's, let's make that assumption. For example, if we vaccinate everybody, we're trying to save money. 
How do we save money is we don't have the hospital admissions. We don't have the ICUs. We don't have people, uh, you know, dying in our hospitals. We still can collect the tax money from the, the economically active individuals. So it's in our interest as governments or uh, in the Department of Health to try and help people not to come into hospital. My, my budget last year, Prof, we spent about 1 billion rand in the free state on COVID. We, don't, we cannot afford that continuously. The reality is it's hugely expensive. So we are wanting to save money. We are wanting to decrease admissions. We are wanting to people to be healthy and we want people to be economically active. And I mean, I, I think sometimes, I think the politicians here, yes, is a political drive here to get vaccinated. We, we won't get away from that. But sometimes our politics are in line with what we want as doctors or healthcare providers as well, to vaccinate as many people, to ensure that we have a healthy society and that people can continue to be economically active. And I don't see here that the medical aides that are wanting to vaccinate people, the reason why the medical aides want to vaccinate people is they've seen it's cost effective to vaccinate people. Now, the question is, why is it cost effective? If you look at the discovery data that is out, the momentum data that is out, and the Sunlam data that has come out, clearly vaccinating people is cheaper than treating the people who get COVID. Why is it cheaper? Because you're preventing them going to hospital, you're preventing the ICU admissions, and you're preventing them being paid out on their death disability cover that those individuals have. So for insurance company, yes, it's a financial decision. Let's pay for the vaccine so that we can prevent economic consequences of that. But I don't think we should see it as conflicting, Prof. I think mm. we could see it as beneficial to both parties. I hope that answers yeah. your yeah, no, no, it does, it does. Angelique, I want to come to you, and and and, and this is a a question uh, that that I think both Adrian and Glenda could also respond to. But if you uh, if you look at the herd immunity, uh, we were in the beginning initial stages, as Adrian have said, we were talking about two thirds, about sixty-seven percent. That number say we will like to get it as high as possible. But 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 then there was also the comment that both Glenda and Adrian made about waning of the effectiveness of the of the uh, of the vaccine, specifically the J and J. Uh, you need to go and boost 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 again, get another booster. So how would you how would you get and maintain that uh, herd immunity of say eighty percent or ninety percent if you have a waning factor that reduce uh, the effectiveness? Uh, of that uh, of the vaccine, are there are are there are there two contradicting things, or is there a tipping point where you have to work towards to say that you should do that within you should probably go for another boost within six months uh, to make sure that you maintain that that herd immunity? Any comments on that? So a very good question. So if you look at the data and um, how long ago this is on um, uh, uh, trial um, started or study started. Um, we now have sufficient data coming through to say, yes, it would help if you get a second booster. Um, I saw the data that Linda presented, and um, I think it's, it's, it's really good, good signs to get a second dose, whether you call it a booster, whatever you want to call it, it's a second dose. Um, we also know that in some of the other vaccines, like the Pfizer, um, we speak about the Pfizer and the um, Johnson & Johnson, because this is what we currently have. So we also saw that some of the data say, okay, um, maybe um, even in Pfizer's case, you would need to have a third vac um, vaccine um, going forward. So a booster is always on the cart. It will be, it's a, a matter of timing. When is the right time to get that going? 
so that you get the maximal effectiveness of that second jab or third jab that you need to take. Um, it is extremely important to understand, if you look at herd immunity, that we cannot promise you that you will never die, you will never get sick if you take the vaccines. There is no such a promise, and we never claim to make that promise out there. What we do claim is to say less severe admissions or disease, and we can show it with the data. So it's not, it's not a conspiracy. It's there. The data is there. It's there for everyone who wants to look and who wants to do the math, although it's, it's an easy math. So if I get vaccinated, whether it's with one dose of Pfizer um, or with one dose of Johnson & Johnson, my, if, I, if I then get infected with the virus, um, my viral load will be low because I've got a better immune system protecting me. So my loading will be low. And then for me to take it back home to my family, because my load is low, I don't, I don't um, have a lot of virus, um, uh, you know, to, to, to give out to someone, whoever is closest to me, less than 1.5 meters, they will also not get that sick going forward. Um, because I'm protecting them. So although we will not get in, in this year to herd immunity, if you can get the majority of people vaccinated with at least one jab, the severity of the disease will be less. And for those of us that will get a, a secondary infection or a breakthrough infection, we will definitely not be that sick. I also want to make another comment, you know, looking at the stats of, 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 of that Discovery gave us and there's 11 that died that has been fully vaccinated. What you need to understand, it's not only about the virus. The, if those 11 people, the, the, bigger, the, the major questions is to ask what comorbidities that they have. We know for a fact that if you are severely overweight, whether you're vaccinated or not, if you are severely overweight and you get the, 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 the virus with uncontrolled diabetes and hypertension, you really are in big trouble. So to lose only 11 um, of people, because it's not only COVID, I can, I can promise you they don't only had COVID, those 11 that died, they had other co co comorbidities or factors. And mm. that's how you look at it. You don't say, oh, they got the jab and they still die. No, you look much wider and you need to get a clinical picture as well. Thanks. Yeah. I hope this helps. No, that, that does help. I'm going to, uh, I'm just looking at the time. And, and you know, when you, when you talk about these things, it's, it's such an interesting discussion. And I think you really have indicated to us the facts, the, the science uh, uh, and, 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 and the data. But there, there is a comment that Adrian, you made about, uh, if you're talking about hesitancy, that that's a spread. There's a spread that you sit there. There's people that that probably are legitimately not taking uh, uh, the vaccine because there are medical reasons. There is lack of understanding information. There is fear. Uh, um, and there is people that just say, well, there are religious grounds. And there's people just say, I, I, want, I don't want to take, to take the vaccine. If and and I'm gonna I'm gonna give each of you just one minute, one minute or two. If you have to give universities advice in terms of how to engage with that group, 
uh, at the University of the Free State, we call, we, we, we have put together a reasonable accommodation panel that would look at those, at those challenges because you know, we are in a democratic uh, country and we also, I hear your views, we must vaccinate, but I want to hear what advice would you give to me as vice chancellor and to other vice chancellors uh, and how do you engage with that group how even wide that spread might be. Um, Adrian, can I start with you? Uh, and and, and we, we, we only got about two, three minutes, so I want to, to get everyone's view. Uh, or I can start with Angelique first, but let me, let me start with you, Adrian. Yeah, it seems to me that you prepared. <laughs> no, not really. I think it's, it's all about being, I guess, pra pragmatic as to what you want to achieve at your university. I think mm. if, who are your targets that you want to really make sure that will be there, will be available, will be at your lectures. And my sense would be that you need to then focus your efforts, because I think it's not just one fits all, one size fits all, I think is the, the common phrase. You need to mm. try and target who those individuals are, and therefore what my strategy will be at each particular point in order to ensure that we can actually maximally um, and vaccinate the largest possible group in the shortest possible time. Thank you. Okay, thank you, thank you. Glenda, any, any advice? Well, I think, um... Um, healthcare workers, doctors and nurses and, and people who work in hospitals who've had to face the first wave, second wave and third wave, um, uh, um, who we've protected from death and hospitalization um, are, I guess, our, our major um, um, uh, um, poster children about the value of vaccination. And we do want to vaccinate them again and they want to be vaccinated again. Uh, because we know that the, that um, the, vac the vaccine, um, uh, the, um, people need um, the vaccine may not be durable enough, and we want to protect our healthcare workers. And so, I guess um, what I'm happy about is that uh, our healthcare workers are demanding um, additional vaccines, and that shows um, they they trust the vaccine, they know it protects them, and they want more and more and more of it. So that's a wonderful um, uh, uh, poster. Child for the 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 fact that healthcare workers want to be vaccinated, and unfortunately, some of them who don't get vaccinated die. And like I had a a, a case this this week, uh, one doctor refused to be vaccinated, and he died um, this week, which is very sad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Angelique, thanks, Glenda. Thank you. I would um, poll the students. I would like to poll them, hear what their concerns are, and address those concerns. I know the question I've been asked the most. Um, under 25 year olds are um, the, uh, around fertility. They're so afraid that their sperm count is going to go down and they're never going to have children. It is amazing, but that is one of the, the biggest concerns that these young youngsters have. Poll them, see what they want, and then speak around that. That's what I will do, thanks. Thanks, thanks Angelique. Nicholas, you got the last word here. Yeah, I, I've thought about this question quite a lot, Prof, and I think Adrian probably elucidated it the best, is I think that we need research and data on why people are vaccine hesitancy. Working on a site, we at Universitas have done about 70,000 vaccines at this point. You hear from the ridiculous, like, I'm not going to give you my ID number because I don't want to give it to government, you know, or I don't want to, you know, have a 5G chip put in my arm or something like that. Two reasonable ones, like... Uh, I've got a history of allergies and I'm concerned that this could trigger an allergy or whatever. And those type of interactions probably have to be done on an individual. I think if you go with a compulsory vaccination within the UFS, what you've got to do is have an opt-out policy. 
that opt-out policy would be various and you'd have to work out a system to deal with those opt-out policies and engage with those individuals on an individual basis. And that is the way I would do it. But I think uh, vaccine hesitancy overall is a very difficult topic to challenge with each person having different ideas and coming from different backgrounds. All right. Panelists, you were amazing. Uh, I think it was it was fantastic. We could carry on in fact, for the whole afternoon, I would like to say thank you very much, uh, uh, Adrian, Glenda, Angelique, Nicholas, for such a such a insightful uh, um, presentations and talk, uh, uh, but also to give us some guidance also as universities in a very very difficult uh, uh, situation where we want and need to take decisions that are fair, uh, but we always have to come back. To the science and and i think the science and evidence could lead us where we where we need to go thank you very much for uh, for also for for your input and also to our technical team lasha on the marketing side marketing and 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 and, and communication our ict team uh, to 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 put this uh, webinar together and, uh, and and to all the delegates thank you for the questions and the debate the active chat that that have taken place i would have loved to have answered all of your questions and 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 but that's obviously not possible but uh, i would like to say to the delegates uh, please watch out for our thought leadership series we are planning our last one for the year uh, uh, um, we're still finalizing the topic, uh, but 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 please please look at the at the at the at the social media and other communication platforms as we advertise our thought leadership series. Colleagues, thank you very much uh, again, and uh, please enjoy uh, the rest of the afternoon. Keep well and keep safe and get vaccinated. Thank you. Bye bye.